The Tree of Appomattox, A Story of the Civil War's Close, by Joseph A. Altscheller, the eighth and final volume of the Civil War series. Produced by Civil War Audio at civilwar.builtwithflash.com. Read by John Bruzes. You can find us on Facebook at Civil War Audio Podcast. Chapter 12, In the Cove General Sheridan permitted the Winchester men to rest a long time, or rather, he ordered them to do so. No regiment had distinguished itself more at Cedar Creek or in the previous battles, and it was best for it to lie by a while and recover its physical strength, strength of the spirit it had never lost. It also gave a needed chance to the sixteen slight wounds accumulated by Dick, Pennington, and Warner to heal perfectly. "'Unless something further happens,' said Warner regretfully, "'I won't have a single honorable scar to take back with me and show in Vermont. "'I'll have one slight, though honorable, scar, but I won't be able to show it,' said Pennington, also with regret. "'I trust that it's in front, Frank,' said Dick. "'It is all right. Don't worry about that. But what about you, Dick?' I had hopes of a place on my left arm just above the elbow. A bullet, traveling at the rate of a million miles a minute, broke the skin there and took a thin flake of flesh with it. But I'm so terribly healthy it's healed up without leaving a trace. There's no hope for us, said Warner, sighing. We can never point to the proof of our warlike deeds. You didn't find your cousin among the prisoners. No, nor was he among their fallen whom we buried nor any of his friends either. I'm quite sure that he escaped. My intuition tells me so. It's not your intuition at all, said Warner reprovingly. It's a reasonable opinion, formed in your mind by antecedent conditions. You call it intuition, because you don't take the trouble to discover the circumstances that led to its production. It's only lazy minds that fall back upon second sight, mind reading, and such things. "'Isn't he a big-word man?' said Pennington admiringly. "'I tell you what, George, General Early is still alive somewhere, "'and we're going to send you to talk him to death. "'They say he's a splendid swearer, one of the greatest that ever lived, "'but he won't be able to get out a single cuss "'with you standing before him and spouting the whole unabridged dictionary to him.' "'At least when I talk, I say something,' replied Warner sternly. It seems strange to me, Frank Pennington, that your life on the plains, where conditions, for the present at least, are hard, had permitted you to have so much frivolity in your nature. It's not frivolity, George. It's a gay and bright spirit, in the rays of which you may bask without price. It will do you good. Do you know what's going to be our next duty? No, I don't, and I'm not going to bother about it. I'll leave that directly to Colonel Winchester, and indirectly to General Sheridan. When you rest, put your mind at rest. Concentration on whatever you are doing is the secret of continued success. They were lying on blankets near the foot of the mountain, and the time was late October. The days were growing cold, and the nights colder, but a fine big fire was blazing before them, and they rejoiced in the warmth and brightness shed from the flames and the heaps of glowing coals. I'll venture the prediction, said Pennington, that our next march is not against an army, but against guerrillas. 
They say that up there in the Alleghenies, Slade and Skelly are doing a lot of harm. They may have to be hunted out, and the Winchester men have the best reputation in the army for that sort of work. We earned it by our work against these very fellows in Tennessee. For which most of the credit is due to Sergeant Whitley, said Dick. He's a grand trailer, and he can lead us with certainty when other regiments can't find the way. Dick gazed westward beyond the dim blue line of the Alleghenies, and he knew that he would feel no surprise if Pennington's prediction should come true. The nest of difficult mountains was a good shelter for outlaws, and the Winchesters, with the sergeant picking up the trail, were the very men to hunt them. He knew, too, that unless the task was begun soon, it would prove a supreme test of endurance, and there would be dangers in plenty. Snow would be falling before long on the mountains, and they would become a frozen wilderness, almost as wild and savage as they were before the white man came. But it seemed for a while that the intuition of both Dick and Pennington had failed. They spent many days in the valley trying to catch the evasive Mosby and his men, although they had little success. Mosby's rangers, knowing the country thoroughly, made many daring raids, although they could not become a serious menace. When they returned through Winchester from the last of these expeditions, the Winchester men were wrapped in heavy army cloaks, for the wind from the mountains could now cut through uniforms alone. Dick, glancing toward the Alleghenies, saw a ribbon of white above their blue line. "'Look, fellows, the first snow,' he said. "'I see,' said Warner. "'It snows on the just and unjust, "'the unjust being Slade and Skelly, "'who are surely up there.' "'Just before we went out,' said Pennington, "'the news of some fresh and special atrocity of theirs came in. "'I'm thinking the time is near when we'll be sent after them.' "'We'll need snowshoes,' said Warner, shivering as he looked. "'I can see that the snow is increasing.' Which way is the wind blowing, Dick? Toward us. Then we're likely to get a little of that snow. The clouds will blow off the mountains and sprinkle us with flakes in the valley. I like winter in peace, but not in war, said Pennington. It makes campaigning hard. It's no fun marching at night in a driving storm of snow or hail. But what we can't help, we must stand, said Warner with resignation. Both predictions, the one about the snow and the other concerning the duty that would be assigned to them, quickly came to pass. Before sunset, the blue line of the Alleghenies was lost wholly in mist and vapor. Then great flakes began to fall on the camp, and the young officers were glad to find refuge in their tents. It was not a heavy snowfall where they were, but it blew down at intervals all through the night and the next morning it lay upon the ground to the depth of an inch or so. Then the second part of the prophecy was justified. Colonel Winchester himself aroused all his staff and heads of companies. A fine crisp winter morning for us to take a ride, he said cheerfully. General Sheridan has become vexed beyond endurance over the doings of Slade and Skelly, and he has chosen his best band of guerrilla hunters to seek him out in their lairs and annihilate them. I knew it, groaned Pennington in an undertone to Dick. I was as certain of it as if I had read the order already. 
but aloud, he said as he saluted. We're glad we're chosen for the honor, sir. I speak for Mr. Mason, Mr. Warner, and myself. I'm glad you're thankful, laughed the colonel. A grateful and resolute heart always prepares one for hardships, and we'll have plenty of them over there in the high mountains where the snow lies deep. But we have new horses, furnished especially for this expedition, and Sergeant Whitley and Mr. Shepard will guide us. The sergeant can hear or see anything within a quarter of a mile of him, and Mr. Shepard, being a native of the valley, knows also all the mountains that close it in. The young lieutenants were sincerely glad the sergeant and Shepard were to go along, as with them they felt comparatively safe from ambush, a danger to be dreaded where Slade and Skelly were concerned. We agreed that General Sheridan was worth 10,000 men, said Warner, and I believe that the Battle of Cedar Creek proved it. Now, if Sheridan is worth 10,000, the sergeant and Shepard are certainly worth a thousand each. It's a simple algebraic problem, which I could demonstrate to you by the liberal use of X and Y, but in your case, it's not necessary. You must accept my word for it. We'll do it! We'll do it! Say no more! exclaimed Pennington hastily. It was a splendid column of men that rode out from the Union camp, and General Sheridan himself saw them off. Colonel Winchester, at their head, was a man of fine face and figure, and he had never looked more martial. The hardships of war had left no mark upon him. His face was tanned a deep red by the winds of summer and winter, and although a year or two over forty, he seemed to be several years less. Behind him came Dick, Pennington, and Warner, hardy and well-knit, who had passed through the most terrible of all schools, three and a half years of incessant war, and who, although youths, were nevertheless stronger and more resourceful than most men. Near them rode the sergeant, happy in his capacity as scout and guide, and welcoming the responsibility that he knew would be his as soon as they reached the mountains, looming so near and white. He felt as if he were back upon the plains, leading a troop in a great blizzard, and guarding it with eye and ear and all his five senses against Sioux or Cheyenne ambush. He was not a mere trainer of a squad of men. He was, in a real sense, a leader of an army. Shepard, the spy, also felt a great uplift of the spirits. He was a man of high ideals, whose real nature the people about him were just beginning to learn. He did not like his trade of a spy but being aware that he was peculiarly fitted for it, intense patriotism had caused him to accept its duties. Now he felt that most of his work in such a capacity was over. He could freely ride with the other men and fight openly as they did. But if emergency demanded that he renew his secret service, he would do so instantly and without hesitation. Colonel Winchester looked back with pride at his column. Like most of the regiments at that period of the war, it was small, three hundred sinewy, well-mounted young men, who had endured every kind of hardship, and who could endure the like again. All of them were wrapped in heavy overcoats over their uniforms, and they rode the best of horses, animals that Colonel Winchester had been allowed to choose. The colonel felt so good that he took out his little silver whistle and blew upon it a mellow hunting call. 
The column broke into a trot, and the snow flew behind the beating hoofs in a long white trail. Spontaneously, the men burst into a cheer, and the cold wind blowing past them merely whipped their blood into high exultation. But as they rode across the valley, Dick could not help feeling some depression over its ruined and desolate appearance, worse now in winter than in summer. No friendly smoke rose from any chimney. There were no horses nor cattle in the fields. The rails of the fences had long gone since to make fires for the soldiers, and the roads rutted deep by the rains had been untouched. Silence and loneliness were supreme everywhere. He was glad when they left it all behind and entered the mountains through a pass fairly broad and sufficient for horsemen. He did not feel so much oppression here. It was natural for mountains to be lonely and silent also, particularly in winter, and his spirits rose again as they rode between the white ridges. At the entrance to the pass, a mountaineer named Reed met them. It was he who had brought the news of the latest exploit by Slade and Skelly, but he had returned quickly to warn some friends of his in the foothills, and was back again in time to meet the soldiers. He was a long, thin man of middle age, riding a large black mule. An immense gray shawl was pinned about his shoulders, and woolen leggings came high over his trousers. As he talked much, he chewed tobacco vigorously. But Dick saw at once that, like many of the mountaineers, he was a shrewd man, and despite lack of education, was able to look, see, and judge. Reed glanced over the column, showed his teeth, yellowed by the constant use of tobacco, and the glint of a smile appeared in his eyes. "'Look like good men. I couldn't have picked them better myself, Colonel,' he said, with the easy familiarity of the hills. "'They've been in many battles, and they've never failed,' said the Colonel with some pride. "'You'll have to do something more than fight up there on the high ridges,' said the mountaineer, showing his yellow teeth again. "'You'll have to look out for traps, snares, and ambushes.' Slade and Skelly ain't soldiers that come out and fight fair and square in the open. No, siree. They're rattlesnakes, a pair of them, and full of poison. We've got to find our rattlesnakes and catch them. If we don't, they'll be stinging just the same after you're gone. That's just the way I look at it, Mr. Reed. Sergeant Whitley here is a specialist in rattlesnakes. He used to hunt down and kill the big bloated ones on the plains and even the snow won't keep him from tracing them to their dens here in the mountains. Reed, after the custom of his kind, looked the sergeant up and down with a frank stare. "'Pears to be a good man,' he said, hefty in build and quick in the eye. "'Glad to know you, Mr. Whitley. You and me may take part in a shootin' bee together, and this old long-barreled firearm of mine can give a good account of herself.' He patted his rifle affectionately, a weapon of ancient type, with a long, slender barrel of blue steel and a heavy carved stock. It was just such a rifle as the frontiersmen used. Dick's mind, in an instant, traveled back into the wilderness, and he was once more with the great hunters and scouts who fought for the fair land of Kentucky. His imagination was so vivid that it required only a touch to stir it into life and the aspect of the mountains 
wild and lonely, and clothed in snow, heightened the illusion. I suppose from what you tell us that you'll have a chance to use it, Mr. Reed, said the sergeant. I reckon so, said the mountaineer emphatically. About five miles up this pass, you'll come to a cove in which Jim Johnson's house stood. Some of them guerrillas attacked it three nights ago. Jim held him off with his double-barreled shotgun till his wife and children could get out the back way. Then he skedaddled himself. They plundered the house and everything worth carrying off, and then they burned it plumb to the ground. Jim and his people near froze to death on the mountain, but they got at last to the cabin of some of their kin, where they are now. Then they carried off all the horses and cattle they can find in the valleys, and besides robbing everybody, they shot some good men. There is surely a good dose of lead coming to every feller in that band. The mountaineer's face, for a moment, contracted violently. Dick saw that he was fairly burning for revenge. Among his people, the code of an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth still prevailed, unquestioned, and there would be no pity for the gorilla who might come under the muzzle of his rifle. But his feelings were shown only for a moment. In another instant, he was as stoic like the Indians whom he had displaced. After a little silence, he added, That man Slade, who is the brains of the outfit, is plum devil. So far as doings in these mountains are concerned, he ain't human at all. He has no mercy for nothing at no time. His words found an echo in Dick's own mind. He remembered how venomously Slade had hunted for his own life in the southern marshes, and chance, since then, had brought them into opposition more than once. Just as Harry had felt that there was a long contest between Shepard and himself, Dick felt that Slade and he were now to be pitted in a long and mortal combat. But Shepard was a patriot, while Slade was a demon, if ever a man was. If he were to have a particular enemy, he was willing that it should be Slade, as he could see in him no redeeming quality that would cause him to stay his hand if his own chance came. "'Have you any idea where the guerrillas are camped now?' asked Colonel Winchester. "'When we last heard of them, they was in Burton's Cove,' replied the mountaineer, "'though, of course, they may have moved since then. "'Still, the snow may have held them. "'It's a layin' right deep on the mountains, "'and even the guerrillas ain't anxious to plow their way through it. "'How long will it take us to reach Burton's Cove?' "'It's just as the weather says, Colonel. "'If the snow holds off, we might make it tomorrow afore dark.' But if the snow makes up its mind to come tumbling down again, it's the day after that, for sure. At any rate, another fall of snow is no harder for us than it is for them, said the colonel, who showed the spirit of a true leader. Now, Mr. Reed, do you think we can find anybody on this road who will tell us where the band has gone? It ain't much of a road, and there ain't many people to ride on it in the best of times. So I reckon our chance of meeting a traveler who knows much is just about as good as our chance of finding a peck of gold in the next snowdrift, which means there's no chance at all. I reckon that's about the size of it. But, Colonel, we don't have to look to the road for the word. What do you mean? We'll just turn our eyes upward to the mountain heights. Some of us who are just bound to save the Union are setting up on top of high ridges where that poison band can't go, waiting to tell us 
where we ought to go. They've got some homemade flags, and they'll wave them to me. Mr. Reed, you're a man of foresight and perception. Foresight? I know what that is. It's the opposite of hindsight. But I ain't made the acquaintance of perception. Perception is what you see after you think, and I know that you're a man who thinks. Thank you, Colonel. But I reckon that in such a war as this, a man has to just set right plumb down and think sometimes. It's naturally forced upon him. Them that starts a war maybe don't do much thinking, but them that fights it have to do a power of it. Your logic is sound, Mr. Reed. I have a powerful good eye, Colonel, and I think I see a man on top of that high ridge to the right. But my eye ain't as good as your glasses, and would you mind taking a look through them? Follow our line from that little bunch of cedars to the crest. Yes, it's a man. I can see him quite plainly. He has a big gray shawl like your own wrapped around his shoulders. Perhaps he's one of your friends? I reckon so, but since he ain't making no signs, he ain't got nothing to tell. It was agreed that them that didn't know nothing was to keep it to themselves while we rode on until we come to them that did. It saves time. Now he's gone, ain't he, Colonel? Yes, something has come in between. It's the first thin edge of the mist. Them's clouds out there in the northwest, floating over the mountains. I'm sorry, Colonel, but more snow is coming. The signs is too plain. Look through that gap and see what big brown clouds are sailing up. They're just chock full of millions and millions of tons of snow. You know your own country and its winter ways, Mr. Reed. How long will it be before the snow comes? Lend me your glasses a minute, Colonel. He examined the clouds a long time through the powerful lenses, and when he handed them back, he replied, Them clouds are moving up in a hurry, Colonel. They have saw us here, riding into the mountains, and they want to pour their snow down on us afore we get where we wanted to go. Colonel Winchester looked anxious. I don't like it, he said. It doesn't suit cavalry to be plunging around in snowdrifts. You're right, Colonel. Deep snow is surely hard on horses. It looks as if we'll be holed up. Bears and catamounts, how them clouds are a-trottin' across the sky. Here come the first flakes, and they look as big as feathers. The colonel's anxiety deepened, turning rapidly to alarm. You spoke of being holed up, Mr. Reed. What did you mean by that? he asked. Shut in by the snow. But I know a place, Colonel, that we can reach, and where we can stay if the snow gets too deep for us. These mountains are full of little valleys and coves. They say the Alleghenies run more than a thousand miles one way, and maybe three hundred or so another. I reckon that when the Lord made him and looked at his job, he wondered how he was going to have people live in such a mass of mountains. Then he took his fingers and pressed them down to the ground lots and lots of times, and he made all sorts of pretty valleys and ravines through which the rivers and creeks and branches could run, and snug little coves in which men could build their cabins and be sheltered by the big cliffs above and the forest hanging on them. I reckon that he favored us up here, cause the mountains just suit me fine. Nothing on earth could drive me out of him. He looked up at the lofty ridges hidden now and then by the whirling snow, and his eyes glistened. It was a stern and wild scene, but he knew that it made the snug cove and the log cabins all the snugger. 
The flakes were increasing now, and an evil wind was driving them hard in the men's faces. The wind, as it came through the gorges, had many voices, too, howling and shrieking in wrath. The young troopers were devoutly grateful for the heavy overcoats and gloves with which a thoughtful general had provided them. But there was one man in the regiment to whom wind and snow brought a certain pleasure. It took Sergeant Whitley back to earlier days. He was riding once more with his command over the great plains, and the foe they saw was a Cheyenne or Sioux band. Here they needed him in his wilderness lore, and he felt that a full use for them all would come. The mountaineer now led them on rapidly, but the snow was increasing with equal rapidity. Fortunately, the road through the pass was level enough to provide good footing for the horses, and they proceeded without fear of falls. Soon the entire column turned into a white procession. Men and horses alike were covered with snow, but after their first chill, the hardy young riders began to like it. They sang one of their marching songs, and the colonel made no effort to restrain them, knowing that it was raising their spirits. "'It's all rather picturesque,' said Warner when the song was over, "'but it'll be a good thing when Reed leads us into one of those heavenly coves that he talks so much about. "'I think this snow is going to be about forty feet deep, "'and it'll be hard for a column of three hundred men to proceed by means of tunnels.' The mountaineer riding by the side of Colonel Winchester was looking eagerly whenever a break in the clouds occurred. At length, he asked him for the glasses again, and after looking intently, said, Just between the edges of two clouds, I caught a glimpse of a man, and he was waving a flag, which was a sheet from his own bed. It would be Jake Henning, because that was his place, and he told me to go straight on to the cove, as they was now expecting us there. Who is expecting us? Friends of ours. People round here in the mountains who want to see you make hash of them gorillas. I reckon they're fixing things to keep you warm. We ought to see another man in his sheet afore long. There would be no trouble about it if the snow wasn't so thick. As they advanced farther into the mountains, the noise of the wind increased. Confined in the gorges, it roared in anger to get out, and then whistled and shrieked as it blew along the slopes. The snow did not cease to fall. The road had long since been covered up, but Reed led them on with sure eye and instinct. An hour later, he was able to detect another figure on the crest of a ridge, this time to their left, and he observed the waving of the signal with great satisfaction. "'It's all right,' he said to Colonel Winchester. "'They're waiting for us in the cove. Not many of them, of course, but they'll help.' "'Have we much more riding?' asked the colonel. "'I don't think the men are suffering, but our horses can't stand it much longer.' "'Not more than an hour.' They passed soon between high cliffs and faced a fierce wind which almost blinded them for the time. But when they emerged, they found better shelter, and presently Reed led them off the main road, then through another narrow gorge and into the cove. They had passed around a curving wall of the mountain, and as it burst upon them suddenly, the spectacle was all the more pleasant. Before them, like a sunken garden, lay a space of twenty or thirty acres, hemmed in by the high mountains, which seemed fairly to overhang its level spaces. A small creek flowed down from a ravine on one side, 
and dashed out of a ravine on the other. Splendid oaks, elms, and maples grew in parts of the valley, and there was an orchard and a garden, but the greater part of it was cleared, and so well protected by the lofty mountains that most of the snow seemed to blow over it. In the snuggest corner of the cove stood a stout double log cabin, and, in the open space around, great fires were roaring and sending up lofty flames, a welcome sight to the stiff and cold horsemen. Fully twenty mountaineers, long and lank like reed, were gathered around them and were feeding them constantly. "'What's this I see?' exclaimed Warner. "'A little section of heaven?' "'Not heaven, perhaps,' said Dick. "'But the next door to it.' "'This was Dick Snyder's home and place, Colonel,' said Reed. "'On account of the gorillas, he found it convenient to light out with his folks three or four days ago. "'But he's come back himself, and he's here to help welcome you. "'There's room in the house and the stable, which you can't see because of the trees, "'for all the officers, and they're building lean-tos here to protect the soldiers and the horses. "'A lot of the fellers have brought forage down on their own horses for you.' "'Mr. Reed,' said the Colonel gratefully, "'you and your men are true friends.' "'But there's no danger of an ambush here?' "'Nary a chance, Colonel. "'We've got watchers on the mountains, "'men that have lived here all their lives, "'and them gorillas have about as much chance to steal up on us "'as the snowflakes have to live in the fires there. "'That being so, we'll all alight and prepare for the night.' "'When Dick sprang from his horse, he staggered at first, "'not realizing how the cold had affected him. "'But a little vigorous flexing of the muscles restored the circulation.' And when an orderly had taken their mounts, his comrades and he went over to one of the fires, where they spread out their hands and basked in the glow. They had brought food on extra horses, and expert cooks were at work at once. Colonel Winchester knew that if his men had plenty to eat and good shelter, they would be better fitted for the fierce work before them, and he spared nothing. Bacon and ham were soon frying on the coals, and the pots of coffee were bubbling. The horses were put behind the high trees, which formed a kind of windrow, and there they ate their forage, and raised their heads now and then to neigh and content. Around the fires, the hardy youths were jesting with one another, and were dragging up logs, on which they could sit before the fires, while they ate their food and drank their coffee. Far over their heads, the wind was screaming among the ridges, but they did not heed it, nor did they pay any attention to the flakes falling around them. The sheltered cove caused such a rebound after the long, cold ride that they were boys again, although veterans of a hundred battles, large and small. Dick shared the exultation of the rest, and had words of praise for the mountaineer who had guided them to so sheltered a haven. He had no doubt that his famous ancestor, Paul Cotter, and the great Henry Ware had often found refuge in such cozy nooks as this, and it pleased him to think that he was following in their footsteps. But he was surrounded by comrades, and the great fires shed warmth and light throughout the whole basin. "'It's a good log house,' said Warner, who had been investigating, "'and as it's two stories, with two rooms on each floor, a lot of us can sleep there. The stable and the corn crib will hold many more, but as for me, I think I'll sleep against one of these lean-tos.' The mountaineers are throwing up. With that behind me, a big fire before me, two heavy blankets around me, and dead leaves under me, I ought to fare well. 
it will at least have better air than those sad houses in which some of the best families of Nebraska live, Frank Pennington. Never mind about the sad houses, rejoined Pennington cheerfully. They're mighty good places in a blizzard, but I think I'll stay outside too, if Colonel Winchester will let us. The colonel soon disposed his force. The younger officers were to sleep before a fire as they wished, although about halfway between midnight and morning they were to join the watch, which he intended to be strong and vigilant. Meanwhile, they ate supper, and their spirits were so high that they almost made a festival of it. The aroma of the ham and bacon, broiled in the winter open, would have made a jaded epicure hungry. They had sardines and oysters in tins, and plenty of coffee, with army biscuits, which were not hard to them. Some of them wanted to sing, but the colonel would not allow it in the cove, although they could chatter as much as they pleased around the fires. "'We don't need to sing,' said Dick. "'The wind is doing it for us. Just listen to it, will you?' All the mountain winds were blowing that night, coming from every direction, and then circling swiftly in vast whirlwinds, while the ridges and peaks and gorges made them sing their songs in many keys. Now it was a shriek, then a whistle, then a deep, full tone like an organ. Blended, it had a majestic effect, which was not lost on the young soldiers. "'I've heard it in the Green Mountains,' said Warner, "'but not under such conditions as we have here. "'I'm glad I have so much company. "'I think it would give me the creeps to be in the cove alone "'with that storm howling over my head. "'Not to mention Slade and Skelly hunting through the snowdrifts for you,' said Pennington. "'They'll take a good long look for you, George, "'knowing what a tremendous fellow you are, "'and then Dick and I would be compelled to take the trouble and danger of rescuing you.' "'I hold you to that,' said Warner. "'You do hereby promise and solemnly pledge yourselves, "'in case of my capture by Slade, Skelly, or anybody else, "'to come at once through any hardship and danger to my rescue.' "'We do,' they said, and they meant it. "'Their situation was uncommon, and their pleasure in it deepened. "'The snow still fell, but the lean-tos, "'built with so much skill by soldiers and mountaineers, "'protected them.' and the fires before them sank to great beds of gleaming coals that gave out a grateful warmth. Far overhead, the wind still shrieked and howled, as if in anger because it could not get at them in the deep cleft. But for Dick, all these shrieks and howls were transformed into a soothing song by his feeling of comfort, even of luxury. The cove was full of warmth and light, and he basked in it. Pennington and Warner fell asleep, but Dick lay a while in a happy, dreaming state. He felt as he looked up at the cloudy sky and driving snow that, after all, there was something wild in every man that no amount of civilization could drive out. An ordinary bed and an ordinary roof would be just as warm and better sheltered, but they seldom gave him the same sense of physical pleasure that he felt as he lay there with the storm driving by. His dreamy state deepened, and with it the wilderness effect which the little valley, the high mountains around it, and the raging winter made. His mind traveled far back once more, and he easily imagined himself his great ancestor, Paul Cotter, sleeping in the woods with his comrades and hidden from Indian attack. While the feeling was still strong upon him, he too fell asleep, and he did not awaken until it was time for him to take the watch with Pennington and Warner. 
It was then about two o'clock in the morning, and the snow had ceased to fall, but it lay deep in all places not sheltered, while the wind had heaped it up many feet in all the gorges and ravines of the mountains. Dick thought he had never beheld a more majestic world. All the clouds were gone, and hosts of stars glittered in a sky of brilliant blue. On every side of them rose the lofty peaks and ridges, clothed in gleaming white, the forests themselves, a vast white tracery. The air was cold but pure and stimulating. The wind had ceased to blow, but from far points came the faint swish of sliding snow. Dick folded his blankets, laid them away carefully, put on his heavy overcoat and gloves, and was ready. Colonel Winchester maintained a heavy watch, knowing its need, fully fifty men, rifle on shoulder and pistol at belt, patrolling all the ways by which a foe could come. Dick and his comrades were with the picket at the farther end of the valley, where the creek made its exit, rushing through a narrow and winding gorge. There was a level space on either side of the creek, but it was too narrow for horsemen, and clogged as it was with snow, it looked dangerous now for those on foot too. Nevertheless, the picket kept a close watch. Dick and his friends were aware that guerrillas knew much of the craft and lore of the wilderness, else they could never have maintained themselves, and they did not cease for an instant to watch the watery pass. They were joined very soon by Shepard, upon whose high boots snow was clinging to the very tops, and he said when Dick looked at him inquiringly, "'I see that you're an observer, Mr. Mason. Yes, I've been out on the mountainside. Colonel Winchester suggested it, and I was glad to do as he wished. It was difficult work in the snow, but Mr. Reed, our guide, was with me part of the time, and we climbed pretty high. You see anything? No, no footsteps. That was impossible because of the falling snow. But I think our friends, the enemy, are abroad in the mountains. The heavy snow may have kept them from coming much nearer to us than they are now. What makes you think so? Shepard smiled. We heard sounds, odd sounds, he replied. Were they made by a whistle? Dick asked eagerly. Shepard smiled again. It was natural for you to ask that question, Mr. Mason, he replied, but it was not a whistle. It was a deeper note, and it carried much farther, many times farther. Mr. Reed explained it to me. Somebody with powerful lungs was blowing on a cow's horn. I've heard them. They use them in the hills back of us at home. The sound will carry a tremendous distance on a still night like this. So you think it was intended as a signal? It's impossible to say, but I think so. I think, too, that the bands, there were two of them, one replying to the other, belonged to the Slade and Skelly outfit. Skelly has lived all his life in the mountains, and Slade is learning them fast. Then it behooves us to be watchful, and yet more watchful. It does. Maybe they're attempting an ambush, with which they might succeed against an ordinary troop, but not against such a troop as this, led by such a man as Colonel Winchester. Wait, did you hear that noise? All of them listened. It sounded at first like the cow's horn, but they concluded that it was the rumble made by sliding snow, which would be sending avalanches down the slopes all through the night. Are you going out again, Mr. Shepard? Dick asked. I think not, sir. Colonel Winchester wants me to stay here, and even if the enemy should come, we'll be ready for him. They did not speak again for a while, 
and they heard several times the noise of the sliding snow. Then they heard a note, low and deep, which they were sure was that of the cow's horn, or its echo. It was multiplied and repeated, however, so much by the gorges that it was impossible to tell from what point of the compass it came. But it struck upon Dick's ears like a signal of alarm, and he and all the others of the picket stiffened to attention. <laughs> 